Welcome to Drinks at Work by Boothby with Sam Bygrave. That's me. This is a show about building creative and rewarding careers in and around the world of drinks. And this episode, we've got something a little bit different. This is a recording of a panel chat that I hosted the other week in Sydney at Paramount Liquor's Future Proof Forum. It was a great night. A number of different distilleries and brands were on hand offering samples, and we had a great audience to listen to three of the talks on the night. This one you're about to hear was about future-proofing our industry. On the panel was Charlie Ainsbury from Proof & Company, Mariella Manato from Denomination Design, and Darren Leaney, who is the head of product for Worksmith in Melbourne. We talk about sustainability for the spirits business and the industry, and thankfully the panel was an engaging one because that topic can get a little dry at times, but this one's a good one. We also talked about pay in the bar world, if bartenders should be getting into bar ownership, and if so, how. And we talked about what the panel wanted to see in the years to come. I really enjoyed this chat. I think you will too. Before we get into it though, I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to the Boothby newsletter at boothby.com.au. You'll get three emails a week straight to your inbox, and it means we get to skip the gatekeepers that are the big tech algorithms. And while I'm asking you things, if you'd like to rate this podcast in your player of choice, that helps to spread the word and keep the podcast going. Okay, so. Let's get into it now. Here's my panel chat with Charlie Ainsbury, Mariella Minato, and Darren Leaney. Okay, if I could just introduce the panel real quick. We've got, uh, in the middle here, we have Mr. Charlie Ainsbury from Proof & Company. Used to be the owner of This Must Be The Place, a groundbreaking bar in its time. Also, notably, the creator of the Belafonte Spritz. It's a drink you should have. <laughs> Honestly, am I wrong? Yeah, thank you very much, someone who knows. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not at modern classic status just yet. Uh, to my left here we have, and we're very lucky to have, uh, Mariella Minato from De Denomination Design. There's a lot of M's and a lot of D's there. Uh, you guys are specialists in drinks branding. A lot of the, the products that you'll see out in the market, they actually work on the, the styling, the branding, and the strategy, and all that sort of execution. So when we're talking about spirits in the future, Mariella's gonna have a lot of great insight on that. And then, at the end of the panel here, he's the uh, creator of the Tiramisu cocktail, number three in the Boothby Drink of the Year Awards last year, by the way. He doesn't even make it himself anymore. Other people do that for him. Uh, he's from, uh, you're the head of product at Worksmith. And you guys, uh, you, you have under that banner the, the homegrown range of uh, bottled cocktails. You're working with Australian suppliers to make that sort of stuff. We're very lucky to have them all here. Can you please give them a round of applause? And so we're talking about, you know, what's going to make this industry sustainable into the future. As I said, it's kind of a big, big, big topic that we're trying to get a little bit of nuance into in the next 20 minutes. Uh, I want to know what it's going to look like in sort of five years' time, this drinks business that we're all in. The first question I'm going to have, though, sustainability is a very big topic. It's, uh, you read about it all the time. But I would like to know, because I'm going to take on the cynical journalist role here, I'm like, what does sustainability mean to you guys? Let's start down the end here and we'll work towards me. Darren? Okay. Uh, I think sustainability is traceable back to people more importantly than anything. And I guess like within, looking within like a, a venue, um, I'd say like the most important thing is happy people, from happy guests to happy staff, uh, return guests, staff who want to be at work, um, and then people who are invested in that kind of, I guess, like small ecosystem that is one singular venue can then have a far greater reach on their wider ecosystem of life, I guess. Um, yeah, I love yeah. that. That's nice. Charlie Ainsbury. Because you, you, sorry, I don't, 
with Proof & Co, you guys do the eco-totes things. You might see them around tonight, right? That's sustainability right. Sustainability yeah. is a big focus for you guys, but what does it mean? Sustainability, in a, in a nutshell, sustainability is, is meeting the needs of, of present day, of now, whilst not compromising that for future generations. That's pretty much it. Which is kind of hospitality, right? It's trying to be nice to the, who, sure. people coming after us. Mariella, because you're coming from like a bottle design, packaging kind of uh, standpoint, and there's a lot of talk about how, you know, yeah. spirits could be more sustainable. What, how do you guys think about it? All drinks can be more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the major thing we all have to think about now, you can't think about, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, really, we have to look at avoid, we are such a wasteful society in general, and every, <laughs> every industry is, and actually drinks isn't the worst uh, culprit. But um, sustainability really at this stage is how can we look at reducing harm, <laughs> the impact that we make on the, um, the environmental world, um, society in general, um, and how can we do the least harm and do the most good? Okay, so how do we do that, right? Because we have, uh, we have some great producers in this room tonight, great distillers, but distilling spirits by its very nature is kind of a very uh, energy-intensive environmentally intensive kind of process um how sustainable can spirits production get let's go with you first mariella it can get very sustainable there's some really exciting uh examples out there at the moment from smaller scale producers there's a great guy over in bristol back in the uk called two drifters um he's really gotten into the detail he's doing i'm not going to bore you with it but he's really looking at how he can trace and track and give people the transparent information, empower them with the information to make the right decisions, which I think as spirit producers, as bartenders, when you're coming across people, all they want to be empowered with is the information to make the better decision. Um, so there are some great producers doing that, even the likes of Glenfiddich, who use their waste materials to produce biofuel to fuel their trucks um, and create circular ecosystems within their production uh, ecosystem. So there's some really good examples out there. Um, I think it's just about everyone getting on board and doing what they can. And Charlie, you guys have the eco totes. That's very much aimed at this kind of problem. I guess my, my question to you, like it seems pretty successful and it's, it's a business that's growing, but how sustainable is that at scale, right? Because you guys, the spirits that you work with are, tend to be smaller scale than say like a uh, a bigger brand like a Diageo, like, you know, in terms of volume. How do you, do you, can that, can that grow in the future? Can yeah, of course it can grow. But to go back on the first question, it's not, it's not sort of how spirits and the spirit industry could be more sustainable, but it's, it, it has to be more sustainable. Like that, it has to be. There's no other choice. And, and brands and companies have to start making those big decisions and start being very, very transparent now because we're already seeing, I mean, I was thinking about it, right? We, there are, I saw an article about LVMH, how they were going at lengths and investing shitloads of money to, to, to understand how their crops can be more sustainable. And it got me thinking that, you know, we, we learn, we hear about the, the destruction of bee colonies and we hear about the ever-changing climate and how that's going to affect other things. That's our industry. Right? We rely on agriculture. So if the agriculture goes, the industry goes. So it's not about can we be more sustainable. It's like you have to be more fucking sustainable. But, but isn't, isn't there something inherently unsustainable about the kind of practice, right? Distilleries are like yes. massive 
<laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah so, so we. Well, so, so what are you doing to make it different then? But so, so to to have a little bit of a platform for ego spirits, that w- that was that was born out of this need to to change things because we go through so much waste. Again, looking at some figures, like we estimated about forty billion bottles uh, of single-use bottles went into landfill last year globally as a spirits industry, not bottles all across the board, just the spirits industry. Three billion bottles in South Korea alone went to soju. And I did some quick maths, and the, we went through, as Australians, we went through 542 million bottles of rum, right? But we recycle, and recycling is the, is the end, right? Forget about recycling. We can't rely on recycling because it doesn't work. And we only recycle about 60% of our glass. Glass is very, very recyclable. It's great. Right, not even, but the current figures from 2021, we recycle about 60%. So it's around 200 million bottles that are going to landfill. And so this was That's a just really, going really, into the ground. Exactly. So this was a huge issue. So yeah. Eco Spirits was born out of that need. And at the same time, if, if anyone has their own brand here or knows anything about starting brands, you'll know that a significant portion of the, the cost you give to the... To the your, to the bartender or to the wholesaler, whoever it is, about 70% to 80% is packaging and shipping. So we wanted to remove that to give people a really great premium boutique craft product at a very, very drastically reduced price whilst creating this closed-loop system, what we think is the first closed-loop system for spirits in the industry. But is that, is that possible? Like I, I know there's been like retail beer shops that will go, hey, we'll re- bring your growler along and we'll refill it. When you're, when you're talking about like the number of hospitality venues, like are you guys going along going, hey, here's a thing that we'll top up your bottles with or what? Like how does it work? I don't, I don't want you to do the brand chat. I know you don't, I know you don't want to do it either. But like just like it, it boggles my mind. How can you do that at scale all across the country? Because then you've got to have trucks on the road as well. Like does that defeat the sure, purpose? It's, it's not a perfect system, but the way it works is that we have these eco plants dotted around the world and the brand. And you're saying that usually they start off with boutique brands like Never Never was one of the first Australian ginger sleeves to jump on board. But we've got the likes of Diageo jumping on board now with Smirnoff and Captain Morgan. Pernod Ricard's on board with Absolute and, and Beefeater Gin and soon to be more. And we've got about, and it, it, yeah, it's, it started small, but we've got about 500 distilleries in Australia knocking on the door of Eco Spirits so we can't quite keep up. So there is demand and so we have to scale for it. And yeah, we have to without going on too much of a rant. Okay. So that's sustainability solved. Very good. Um, <laughs> but Darren, like, do you, you guys are starting out and making bottle cocktails. You're starting to sell, sell around the country. Is this something that you guys are thinking about? Because I know Worksmith's very community-minded as a company. How do you guys approach this at the moment? Well, I guess at the moment we're still in such a startup phase that we're, we're still putting out cocktails in bottles. But what we're looking to do is launch as many drinks as we can in kegs. Um, what that looks like going forward will be to move away from key kegs probably and move towards convoy kegs that can be refilled. But also looking at like making the drinks as, I guess, certainly for on-prem, uh, on-premise as like a compounded drink, so sort of like an alcoholic cordial that you add soda to rather than it being a finished drink. So you're getting 16 drinks out of a bottle instead of six drinks out of a bottle. Um, but I guess it's like it's a it's an interesting time to be in this in this role because we've sort of just hit the ground running coming out of lockdowns and now it's like looking at you know how can we reduce costs on packaging how can we reduce costs on glass how can we take glass 
out of the equation? How can we make things available more in bulk um, that just kind of cuts back the supply chain that we need to use? Like there's less transport, there's less production costs, there's less production time. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, I don't know, it's a, Interesting, very open-ended uh, question for us at the moment. Yeah, well, we're going to solve it in 20 minutes. I told you, it's going to be fine. Mariella, you, you, you guys have big clients like, uh, you know, Perno, uh, sorry, uh, Penfolds is one of your clients. Perno is one of them. <laughs> when you're having meetings with these guys about new bottle designs and all that sort of stuff, is this something that you build into the chat? Is this something that they genuinely care about or is it something that they do because that's kind of how you need to make money these days to position yourself? No, well, a little from column A, a little from column B. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, increasing regulation as well around what big companies can and cannot do. They all have ESG reporting. They all have targets they want to hit. Um, so a lot of the bigger companies have um, guidelines around uh, glass weight and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's also a pull from consumers, right? Um, one of the main luxury values right now is sustainability. It is a privilege to be able to buy a sustainable product. Unfortunately, we haven't got to a point where it is within reach of a lot of people. But at the top end, sustainability is becoming more and more of a non-negotiable. Um, now it's really about making sure that you're delivering it authentically um, because the greenwashing right now, I mean, between Red Cycle, between the ACAC reviews, like there's a, there's a lot of stuff um, and a lot of dubious mistrust within the consumer world. So I think it's really about um, making sure that as brand owners and as businesses, yes, we want to deliver this, um, but we've really got to have the, the meat to follow through. Otherwise, you're going to get found out. <laughs> yeah, but is there a demand from the public for this? Because, I mean, there's not a week that goes by I don't get a press release from some new luxury brand with an insanely heavy bottle and a whole lot of packaging that goes around it with some you know, yeah. decent liquid maybe. Do consumers want that kind of experience? Do they like having the, the heavy bottle in their hands? Yeah. And how do, you, how do you denote premium then if you're not doing it through those cues? Yeah, it's really hard. They absolutely do. But it's the same as like, you know, I didn't want to wear a seatbelt in the front seat ages ago. And I certainly didn't want to be told to smoke outside. And here we are. You know, sometimes we have to now change our behavior. Okay, um, but at the same time, um, glass gets a really bad rap because it's really heavy. It's also the only inert packaging format, and I'm not going to get weird and scientific here, but... You explain that very quickly in a non-scientific way. Yeah, it's way. not toxic, so right. it doesn't matter how long it stays in the ground, doesn't matter how long it touches your liquid, it's not going to impart any chemical toxicity, it's not going to... Um, damage the quality of your liquid. So there's a reason that we've been using glass for thousands and thousands of years. The problem is, is that we run our furnaces on fossil fuels and we run our trucks and our ships on fossil fuels. So when we get to renewables, you can have as heavy a glass bottle as you want to. You can go to town. That's uh, the good news. That's, that's going to be great for Kanye. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'll a round of applause <laughs> for that too. Okay. Um, I want to move quickly to the, the human aspect of things as you were talking about before. Um, when it comes to staffing in the industry, uh, like again, I'll, you open up the news and like there's always a restaurant and catering association arguing against whatever minimum wage rights uh, raises go on. Um, and I guess my question is, do you think as a former bar owner, as a, a bartender, someone who works uh, with a company that's got bars and as someone who drinks in bars, Mariella, 
Uh, do you think bartenders are getting paid too much? No. No. All right, do you As think... someone who drinks all their delicious drinks, absolutely not. All right, do you think they're getting paid fairly? Sometimes. Yeah, I, th- I think salaries are much, much better now, even with this ridiculous cost of living that we're living with. Some are maybe not living with it so well. But I, I guess like what I'd love to see more of is sort of like remuneration without money. Like maybe it's training, maybe it's paying for courses, uh, it's mental health days. Like I mean, just like truly caring for the staff when they're there or when they're not there. But I think it's a tricky, I don't know, it's a tricky one because the bottom line in restaurants and bars is razor thin, like razor thin. So. But is it hard to operate a, a good bar business by paying yourself well? Because like, the, the things that you hear is just like, well, you know, I've got to cut staff costs. They never cut like, you know, rent costs, that sort of thing. But is it like, can you do it? Like you've owned a bar, can you do it and pay people pr- well? Yeah, when... Like thinking about the paying our staff and I was really, for a long time, I was really worried about raising menu prices because, you know, if, if you know, across the board in your, in your city, for instance, if you, if everyone charged an average of 19 to 20 bucks and you had cocktails on there for 23 bucks, you would probably get a little bit of a revolt from, from people saying, I can't believe that. Um, they complain about it and whatnot, but fuck them. You have to raise prices. No, because, because plumbers don't, reduce their prices, electricians don't reduce their prices, the rent doesn't go down, so you have to raise prices. And so across the board, so I mean, you know, like, cocktails really should be costing, you know, north of 25, if you want to have all bases covered. But there is this, this kind of invisible, almost like pressure from the public saying, you know, they're not going to pay anything more than $5 for their coffee. They're not going to pay any more than this much for their Negroni or their Martini. If a beer is, is, is over 10 bucks, then, then it's a rot, you know? So we, we face this constant pressure, especially as bar owners, you know? And then that obviously reflects, you know, onto staff as you go, well, I've got to raise prices because I want to pay them fairly. And of course, as a bar owner, you have the choice to pay your staff as much as you want. So, so yeah, those are my thoughts. Well, I think you won the, I think you won the panel just now. Woo! <laughs> Fuck them was the quote of the day. Um, <laughs> when it comes to sort of the future of the industry, are there ownership models? It's like it's it, the small bar legislation in, in New South Wales in particular, but in other states, allow bartenders to get in the game for the first time. But I feel like that wave of like bartenders being able to afford to do a small bar is kind of maybe at its end because you don't make a heap of money on it as a bartender. Are there ownership models out there that you could see would get more bartenders into the owning the bar business? I recently had a chat with someone who is a bar owner and they're expanding to become a group and he sort of pitched me an idea for like this utopian bar ownership idea of his and I think it's pretty, I mean, if he could pull it off, it'll be incredible where it's sort of like... Yeah, but you need to call it utopian, which is, well, a, which is scary. Well, you know, that's not to say it's not achievable. We're talking about sustainability and like it could be, but it's sort of like as a collective group, they bring bartenders up or they bring waiters up through their group they take them through all the venues so the staff are trained across the venues as a group an owner needs to make I don't know $70,000 a year obviously they need to make more than that but once they're making their salary the, 
the profits just go back into the business to then help their bartenders who are coming up and want to go towards ownership get the training required. Maybe it's leadership training, maybe it's WESIT training, maybe it's like an MBA. Um, but it's just it, the money that comes from the business goes back into the business to help kind of grow the group, but also keeping it as like a small, it seems like a small group, but it's part of a larger thing with structure that small businesses aren't often able to access, which, you know, one person will shoulder the load of five sometimes. Like, do you think it's a good thing that there seems to be sort of the small bars are getting, becoming sort of small bar groups now? There seems to be a, a rise in sort of, uh, groups getting bigger and that kind of thing. Is that a good thing or do you want to see more like, I mean, it's kind of fragmented, but more small bar operators operating? Like, is there a, a good way to go on either one of those things? I mean, short answer, I don't, I don't know. But I, w I was thinking just then, like, I don't think if someone, w not, not everyone should be a bar owner, right? Like, I didn't, I, turns out I, I didn't want to be a bar owner. Speaking of sustainability, after three years, you have to question why you want to open a bar. And, and the answer should never be, I want to make money, right? Like to yeah, rephrase, that, what was it like Richard Branson said, if you, like, if, you want to, if you want to be a millionaire, like open a, open a bar with a billion dollars, yeah. you know, like you'll straight away, you'll lose your money and you'll never make it back. So you have to question why you want to own a bar. And if it's, if it's a creative outlet, there's other ways to do that without owning a bar. Because owning a bar is, is definitely not about creativity at the end of the day. I mean, it can be if you, if you work out those systems, but for a small bar person like, like myself and I did with Luke, like we did every single thing, then the government throws you some bullshit tax thing that you, you had no idea was, that, that was going to come to you. And we were, we, when we were about to open our bar, we realized we hadn't written a cocktail list because, and we had to spend another month not paying rent because we didn't actually write any cocktails because we were so consumed with it. And then that's, that was the three years that you know, in operation, it, we had obviously great moments and it was a successful bar. And it, it was a, a really well-regarded bar, right? It was great, yeah. yeah. But, but just thinking about being a bar owner is probably not the answer, especially in this day and age. When, like, you know, when um, I was growing up in bars, it was either you, when you, you, know, you started a glassy, a bar back, you move up to a bartender, bar manager, then you, do you become an owner or do you go into sales and become a brand ambassador? And it was really, that was the only fork in the road. But now, like, there are groups who have got chief whiskey person and, and you know, head of, what was um, Booney saying before? Like, all it's these, verification. like... Right, but I'm sure that's not a, it's not a real role, is it, Booney? That's <laughs> gross if it is. But, um, but there, there's so much diversity now in, in bars. So when it comes to ownership, I think it's... I th ultimately, I think it's cool, you know, as opposed to having, you know, more large macro groups pumping out Ship bars, basically, you know? Yeah, we, well, we don't need any more ship bars. Um, okay, so last question before we wrap up here, and I'll throw it to the audience in a second, but if we could just quickly, I'd love to get your sort of crystal ball like eyes on here. I'll start with you, Mariella. Where, where would you like to see, because you're coming from this from a punter side as well, what, like, let's say 10 years down the track, what does the bar landscape look like? Um, I would love to see uh, more refill and like more opportunity for bartenders to actually become a little bit more of a gatekeeper for information and education with consumers. I think sometimes um, we underestimate almost that the role of the bartender, and often when I'm talking to brand owners, 
you talk about seeding in the on-premise because you guys give the brands and the liquids and the drinks so much more credibility. You're able to tell a story that sometimes you can't tell on packaging. I'd love to see bars that really celebrate sustainable spirits and actually become a kind of gateway for people to discover these things in a really credible, real way. Um, so yeah, in terms of the on-premise, that's definitely what I would see. In the off-premise, lots more um, refill and lots more transparency. I think that's what consumers are really crying out for. There's Isn't a lot that of too much information. Do they really care? Yes, like, they do. Really? You don't, but well, you're old. No, I'm, I'm, I'm old and I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, but. young people care. They do. Um, they do. And uh, yeah, if you look, people will look for it as much as they're interested. But if it's not there. It's a, it's a massive red flag. And there's so much greenwashing at the moment. I think brands just need to be really conscious. If you're going to sell a sustainability story, you've got to mean it. Otherwise, just don't even go there. All right. Thank you. Charlie Ainsbury, aside from everyone having a Belafonte on their list, how does the bar look in, in 10 years' time? That would be a good world, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'd like to see... I'd like to see an end to, like, like the, I hate talking about the pandemic, but the pandemic gave us a lot of, um, a, a, a kind of perspective on what's needed and what's not. And even before then, like we have to, I'd, I'd like to see people looking at their bars and realizing the, the stupid stuff that we're doing. And single-use glass is one of them. You know, like, when we did our, our test at, um, we did our test at Raffles in Singapore for Eco Spirits, and we were doing, looking at all the data, like a bottle of gin at Raffles lasts roughly five minutes, right? And so go th think all the way back about, because they make so many Singapore slings that a bottle of gin lasts five minutes. So, and maybe, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit shorter, but that's what people go there for. So if you look at the effect of one cocktail has on the, the whole industry in terms of the bottling line, bottles come from China, they get shipped over there, they get refilled here, put on a pallet, back on a ship, and it lasts 10 seconds. And then you think about stuff in your bar, you think, like, I know the Victorinox steak tomato knives are incredible, but what do you do when they go dull? You throw them away, right? Do you go and sharpen them? You don't. When your bottle bins are empty under the bar, do you take out the bottle bins even when you're slammed and put them in the recycling or put them in the glass waste? You don't. You throw them in the regular general waste bin. You did. Because I did, right? You, that's what you, guys you do. Don't, so, right? <laughs> but there are so many things that we do that are just so wasteful. So, crystal ball 10 years' time. We, we take that seriously. And of course, you know, we want to see the industry thrive. I think people, you know, mankind's been drinking for so long and, you know, during a financial crisis and stuff, it's great to be a bartender because people are always going to be drinking, but we have to make sure that the future generations have the luxuries that we did um, in terms of their career, in terms of their pay, in terms of their lifestyle and things like that. So that's what I'd like to see. Uh, can we just all vote for Charlie Ainsbury as Pam? Um, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Darren, I don't know how you're going to follow that, but it's your turn. Uh, what he said. Um, no, I think, I think I'd probably just echo what actually has been said. I think like greater relationships between bartenders, bar owners, bar managers and suppliers, like going to the source, you know, sourcing barrels of whiskey, buying demijohns of gin creating bespoke products, um, kind of like telling, telling a wider story, but I don't know, I guess interacting with people that share values or suppliers that share values that you as a person and a business share as well, um, I think it'd be 
you know, hopefully that's what we see. We see more bar agricoles in the world. Um, yeah. No, well, that's, that's a very nice place to end it. Does anyone have any, any questions? I think we've got time for one or two. What you got? Do you see any problems with, like, P- <clears throat> do you see any problems with uh, P&L versus sustainability, as in um, where's that cost going to sit? Because essentially there's initial outlay with sustainable products like Eco Totes where it's quite large, but then you're actually making a saving. And do you see problems with companies, like we've mentioned previously, using that to increase their EBIT rather than increase their employees' wages? I think that's one for you, Mariella. I didn't hear that. Oh, you didn't hear it? I can, did you hear it? I didn't hear it. Did you hear it? No, it's not for you. That was a joke. Oh, joke. I'm like, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Go, Charlie. Yeah, look, you know, sometimes they don't go over. Uh, No, uh, we don't don't know. Uh, We don't know just yet because it's still still young. Um, We've got um, our EcoSpirits operations engineer, our head of operations over there, Patrick, who might be able to give you those... I guess numbers and stuff, but that's, I know this is a kind of lousy answer, but especially the future with spirits or anything in luxury, it has to be, it has to be coming from a kind of transparent, from, from transparency nowadays. And so we have to push it in that way. There has to be some sort of seismic shift because what we're doing now is not sustainable. Um, It's not going to work in 10 years. So that's why us at EcoSpirits are doing this now. And what does that look like in a, in a P&L standpoint? I mean, it was, it was born out of, of, of being able to, given the ability for, for cocktail bars to pour really great spirits at a really great price. Because we're telling you directly, we're being very, very transparent, saying all of these guys are spending a lot of their money on shipping and packaging, right? So much behind a brand is marketing anyway, right? You'll never get rid of marketing, but, um, but that's what it was designed for. So what the, the bigger guys do in the future, I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I can't answer that, sorry. Okay, anyone else? One more? From Paris? Um, so, obviously the last few years, like, sustainability has been a big, big challenge for our industry. You know, we've seen what you guys have brought out for packaging. We're seeing, you know, mental health, physical health, big kind of stuff like that. Um, what's our next big hurdle? And this is for more people who are going to watch this after the fact that aren't here right now that might be new to the industry or might be up and coming where do we see our next big hurdles that we should also be looking forward towards? We're looking at what's going to be 10 years in the future. What else should we be looking at now? What's a glaring problem that we should be identifying, researching, developing, and exploring? That's a question I wish I had on my list. Um, from my perspective, obviously, working in packaging, um, a big thing is substrate and format innovation. Um, Go beyond glass. There is so much waste in the packaging um, supply chain. The amount of plastic, the amount of toxicity in the inks, in the adhesives, in like it's unbelievable. And the amount of R and D that's being done now—it's frustrating that it didn't happen ten years ago. But it's happening really, really quick. And so I'm excited. What you know. In 10 years' time, what packaging is going to be available to us, I think it's going to be incredibly same, same, but different in that it's all going to be biomaterials, it's going to be biomimicry, there's going to be a lot of really interesting innovations in substrate that's going to be boring as hell to most people, but it will be very good for the planet. <laughs> Anyone else? 
I think um, the 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 next big shift will be well. It's it's kind of this tipping point, right? Like for for so long we knew plastic was bad, but we still put two straws in a mojito, like plastic straws, right? And we always knew that plastic bags were bad. Like when I was in school, um, you know, in like middle school or primary school, we were told how long bags last, and we always knew this. But there was some sort of tipping point where we, we as an industry went no more, right? And so plastic straws do not get sold in, in this. I mean, they do, but but now there are so many options for paper straws, right? That was one kind of big tipping point that happened. So there needs to be that other tipping point where we say, um, we like you know, we don't want to use single-use glass, or we don't want to. We we're, we're done getting paid this amount. We need to be paid more because of this reason, this reason, this reason. And it takes you. It's in terms of brands and stuff. Brands follow the money. If their more sustainable package or whatever it is sells more, then they will put all the money there, right? And they will do away with their original glass packaging. They follow the money, you know? Um, and so, so you guys as consumers and as bartenders, if you want to push it and you really do care, then you have to go out and, and find something that's obviously sustainable for yourself and your business, but you have to show the market that that's, that's where we're going towards. And it's already, kind of, it's already happening already. There was, I, again, some more figures. But 40, like, there was 14,000 people served in 18 countries, and 49% of them actively, in terms of spirits, actively look for something with a sustainable or green something about them. So they're already, they're already there, you know? So Which it's, is it's why everyone's happened. trying to wrap their stuff in that greenwashing thing, right? But Yeah, that's yeah. another conversation. The capitalism together, will which find Which we can away. have right now if you want. <laughs> All right, we're, we're going to leave it there. Oh, hell, we've got what's Dylan, so he has to have a question. Hey, thank you. It's been fascinating. Do you think, I mean, we're here with Paramount and obviously our deliveries arrive every week, but from a patch packaging perspective, do you think we could do premium spirit without the cardboard box as a star? Uh, we could QR code L the beautiful things written on the tube because we just, we fill a, like we fill a bin on Tuesday every week with the packaging we don't touch. I mean... Yes. <laughs> Honestly, I think there are already examples in premium, super premium whiskeys. Like Brooklyn Attic has got rid of all of their secondary packaging, all of their secondary gifting. Um, so definitely the progressive brands are showing the way. Um, and it's just, it's just a matter of that tipping point um, where that becomes the norm. But yeah, absolutely. I think people will start to realize that all of the secondary stuff um, needs to have a purpose um, and I think that's the key thing if it adds value um, and has a reason for being and can have a secondary use um, which is what we're doing in our you know when it when we're dealing with super premium brands if they're going to have secondary packaging it needs to have a secondary use it can't be something that's just going to go into the bin and be forgotten about um, that's the challenge. That's what adds value to the drinker's experience, to the brand. If it's not doing that, then I absolutely believe we will see the end of, of all that secondary stuff and it'll just be about the product and telling that story. It's all about the good liquid, right? Okay, let's give these guys a round of applause, please. Thank you very much for that. Thanks to Paramount Liquor for having me and the panel. We've got another couple of these to send out in the coming weeks. I hope you enjoyed them. Thank you to you for listening. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please share them with a friend. It really helps to get the word out. And give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get yours. I really do appreciate your support. 
Until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Boothby.